Hello listeners, this is Abraham and I am excited to announce that we are doing our first ever live stream event on May 1st, which is a Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific time, which is 8 p.m. Eastern time. We're inviting everyone to participate online and join us so you can throw in your comments, questions, random facts, whatever you want to do. The whole team will be participating so you get to sort of meet everyone and uh, we look forward to seeing you there. Check out our website at www.wwdpodcast.com or any of our social media places to look for information about how to join that event. See you there. You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I'm Shane. And today we are talking about why we love triangles. Ah, acute, obtuse. <laughs> There's so many different kinds. Equilateral. <laughs> All... <laughs> also, equilateral is a great word. Yeah, maybe that should be a band name. It'd be a <laughs> like a prog metal band or something. Yeah, like a Rush cover band. <laughs> there you go, they call it a Rush cover band. Like... <laughs> All right, not literally triangles, actually. We're talking about why we love metaphorical triangles and mostly what they represent, which is to say we are talking about dun, 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 triage. Triage. That's right. How it works and why we do it and all the other things about it, right? Yeah, so you know, chances are you've been through some kind of system like this or some capacity. In one way or another, basically, you've experienced what a triage system looks like. Because it's applied in so many different areas or domains of human activity, particularly where large groups of people have the same general need, you'll see this a lot in like a medical facility. So as a matter of fact, I was just in an emergency room recently and they had a big sign over the check-in that just said triage. Like that's what it said when you walked into the emergency room. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> now, most people who are familiar with this might feel like this seems like a fairly common sense idea, but it is worth pointing out like this had to come from somewhere. And it's maybe even more recent than you would have guessed, at least in the iteration of it that we now know. That's always my favorite thing about any of these topics that we cover. It's like, oh, I feel like I've heard about this my entire life. Oh, it's only 20 years old. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and if you're like us, you'll probably start to think of other situations where triage might vastly improve that system. So you'll kind of take this process or take this concept that we're talking about and start applying it to these different scenarios that you might come across. Right. So today, what we're going to review is what we know about the history of triage. We are going to talk about various systems of triage where they have sort of been applied and ask the question, is this the best idea ever? Spoiler alert. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes. This is something I feel like we do a lot of episodes where we're very critical of something. And I love doing those because I think that they're fun. But I also love doing these episodes where we get to err on the side of just wild optimism and positivity. And this will be one of those. Yeah, one day we'll do an episode on toxic optimism, but today, this is good optimism. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Nearly toxic, but still pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so it's worth, like all of our topics, we want to go into a background a little bit. So we're going to start with defining triage and what it means and kind of where it comes from. So to start off, the definition of triage comes from the French tria or trier or however you pronounce that. French is not a strength of mine. I actually dropped out of French in college, so... So from this word, it means it means anything that has to do with sort of sorting, selecting, shuffling into groups, that sort of thing, or maybe just saying grouping as a way of considering it. But yeah, that's essentially what that, that word means. As a noun, it refers to the system of assessing the need of intervention or support, usually, historically, in medicine, as you mentioned earlier. However, it can also be used as a verb, 
And when doing it this way, it refers to the process of sorting people. So for example, you can be triaged or I can triage you. And although it may sound dirty, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) And again, this means that you're sorted into a category of need for some kind of intervention or support. Yeah, and there are different categories of triage. So you'll see that there's something like social standing, severity of injury, success likelihood, uh, sometimes referred to as a, quote, advanced triage, end quote, time to deliver treatment, and preventative and systemic triage. So you'll see a lot of different ways that that they use categories to help kind of shuffle people into the right places. Yeah, and that part of that list is how it has been applied in the past. So like social standing doesn't necessarily apply as much anymore. But these are the sort of the criteria by which people have implemented a triage system. And one thing you'll know is you hear tree, tria, that sort of prefix. You often will think of the word three, like in triangle, for example. In this case, as we mentioned, it comes from the word meaning to sort. It does not actually mean three. Although you will often see that there are sort of three levels or three categories three main approaches and a lot of the triage systems we'll talk about. It just depends on the situation and the setup and three is very common, but it doesn't necessarily mean three just for your own edification. Yeah. That's important as we go through this. The more modern version of triage that most people will be familiar with, we're going to discuss in a moment because in doing the research for this, I actually discovered there's something that maybe A lot of people knew about this, at least history nerds, something called the Edwin Smith Papyrus. And this is the oldest known medical text on trauma. And this is from the 17th century BCE in ancient Egypt. And in this text, it outlined some of the basic principles of triage based on essentially three categories. And so the first category was one, I can heal this. Next category, I intend to fight with this medical condition. Which I think is awesome. <laughs> it's lovely. It's so so ancient Egyptian. Yeah. I think this indicates that the physician or whoever the person who was deciding what, how to group this person is basically saying, this is something I can work with. And then three, the third and final one is, I cannot heal this. And so you can sort of see already the beginning stages of what would become sort of a triage system later on of identifying either I can do this, I can do this with difficulty, or I can't do this. And having that be a way of looking at traumatic injury and showing a level of, quite frankly, impressive comprehension. And in this history of treating traumatic injury so far back in time. And so it's, you know, just imagine how much knowledge, if they had this kind of knowledge then, and it didn't even really show up here until about the the 1700s, we'll get to in a moment, like how much more knowledge didn't survive over those periods of time. It's unfortunate because it's like we just keep reinventing the wheel sometimes. Absolutely. And, you know, I thought it interesting, too, that they had kind of like these three pillars of medical intervention in this text, considering that the ancient Egyptian culture was so big on triangles. Mm. <laughs> That's what it is. That's got to be it. That's got to be it. <laughs> I'm going to make loose correlations throughout this entire talk. So. <laughs> Love it. That's great. The next known documentation of triage comes from Baron Dominique Jean Larray. Right? I don't know. That's Larry? Jean Larry, Larry, maybe. I don't know. John Larry Larry is probably a fine guess. I feel like if your first name is Baron, it's got to be Baron Dominique Jean Larry. That's a very good point. Well, he was a Baron. His name was Dominique. Oh, I don't know. If my title was Baron, I think I would still add flourish to my last name. Understandable. (laughs) Spike L. Spike L. 
So Baron Dominique was a battlefield surgeon in the 1790s as part of Napoleon's Imperial Guard. So there was some really cool documentation that came out of this area. Yeah. And so he essentially was going back to the the sort of categories of triage that existed there. There was this idea that wasn't exactly triage, but in a way it kind of was, which was save the wealthy elites first. Ooh. And that was the social status sort of thing, the social standing categorization and sort of work your way down. And Dominique Jean Larray, or maybe just call him Larray or Larry, he instead was categorizing these soldiers in the battlefield based on the how, how much time it would take to help them and the severity of their injury. Okay. And so this was no longer social standing and was not even first come first serve. It was looking at the battlefield thinking like we have a lot of people to help here. Let's prioritize our time and the amount of medics that we have to best serve these people. And so for an example, it might be this person has a wound that is life threatening, but can be treated. I'm going to bandage it up. And I'm going to give them, you know, morphine or whatever. I'm going to move on to the next person. This person has a fatal wound that there is nothing I can do about. I'm going to try and make them as comfortable as possible. Say a prayer for them, probably, (laughs) and tell them, like, everything's going to be okay and let them drift off into oblivion. This next person, like, they have a scratch. They'll be fine. I'm not going to spend any time on them. And, like, that's just an example of how they might go around categorizing people to receive care. And so it wasn't just, like, you're the first person I saw. Therefore, you get all of my attention. It's where the need was the most pressing. And when you start thinking about that, what's really kind of the benefit and and the good out of that? You can actually save a lot more people, right? Like a lot more. A lot more. Like it's it's like this idea. I mean, all of us have kind of done this where we've worked in a space where we've had to put out fires, right? So especially I would say now is probably more timely than anything. Like we're learning what to prioritize over other things so that we can kind of sustain stuff, right? And so that's kind of the same process. Like we're deciding on what is the most important thing to work on at this time so that we can continue doing what we're doing and continue to survive. Yeah, exactly. Now, this was going on in about the 1790s. Other countries, such as the United States, began developing and implementing their own systems of triage, not until a few years later into the 1800s, and it sort of developed continually on after that. Yeah, so interestingly, with triage, you can have an embedded triage system. So for example, a 2006 article in the Emergency Medicine Journal pointed out that in an emergency, there will be a triage system for when, where, and who will dispatch for help, a triage system on the ground at the scene of the incident, and a triage system at the hospital or treatment center. So you'll see like almost like a triage of triage, like a system of triage that goes on at each level of intervention. And I'll link that article in the notes so that people can check that out if they'd like to. Furthermore, as a patient's symptoms improve, deteriorate, or otherwise change in some manner, that patient will likely be resorted again into a new group as it is needed. And and therefore, what's important to understand about this is that this triage process is ongoing throughout the care of the patient. They don't just get lumped into a group and then they just stay there indefinitely. And the implication of this that might seem obvious to some people is this likely means that they're going to change hands a lot. But this should be done in a way that ultimately benefits the patient and other patients who have higher levels of need. And so just an example of this being if someone comes in for some emergency medical situation, or at least it seems like an emergency, they sort of improve on their own. They might be shuffled out of like high priority group to 
we will get to you as soon as we have dealt with these other people who desperately need our attention. Or alternatively, they might come in at what seems like really low priority and then they rapidly deteriorate to this person's in critical condition and needs attention now. And then they will get that attention when needed. But you know, it's just paying attention to where that person's at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's, that's probably one of the best features about triage is that this, this idea that wherever you end up, it's not static. So that ongoing assessment piece is, is designed to allow you to move to the place where you can get the most help at that time of need. Right. So to kind of, Go forward here a little bit. John Wilson in 1846 added another level or maybe even replaced the level of focus to prioritize success rate. And so that is, we're not going to spend as much time working on patients that are unlikely to survive anyway. And that's kind of goes back to the papyrus, you know, the Egyptian method previously mentioned. We're going to, we're basically saying like, Hey, there's nothing we can do here. So let's go ahead and allocate our resources to the place. that's going to be the most benefit. Right. So that categorization of what you kind of see as systems of triage, one of them being where are we going to be the most successful? Let's spend our time there. Another one that started to become more relevant in World War II shifted focus instead toward efficiency of time. And the idea of this triage system was how many people can be helped in the shortest amount of time. And so it was like, if this person's going to take me an hour to work on, I could have saved 30 people in that amount of time. And so you can see, like, I don't think there's necessarily an objective way to weight the importance of one of those. I think it's just a matter of sort of considering the overall context of that situation. And in World War II, there were so, so many people that were just in constant need of attention. The focus just had to become on, let's save as many lives as possible, and less so about like, let's really figure out those people who are in the worst condition and need saving because like, it might just line up that you had someone who was in desperate need of saving and it was a quick thing that you could do. It's like, all I have to do is like tap, tip up this wound that will stop the hemorrhaging that's happening. They'll be okay. And like, that's great. Like those things make sense. But otherwise it was focused more on just like, if I can save 30 lives in the time it would take me to save this one person, I'm going to save those 30 lives. And you know, that's, I think an understandable sacrifice to have to make sad as it is. Yeah, and given the context of World War II, that makes the most sense from a functional standpoint, right? Yeah. Like, if I can get more people up off the ground and back into action, then we're going to have a higher success rate. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fair point. I wasn't thinking of the back into action part, but that's understandable, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the first thing I thought of. I was like, okay, if I can get more people up off the ground and out of these beds, they can go right back into the field. And that happens so much because their, their resources were so limited. Yeah, here's a morphine, here's a gun, go do some damage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds like my recommendation later. I was going to make a really terrible joke about maybe a certain chain of stores where you can get both like Prozac and guns, <laughs> but I'll just, I'll just leave that one there. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll drop that for a second. So, another cool thing that you'll see and you've probably experienced, I mean, hopefully you haven't experienced this too much, but this is something if you've ever visited an emergency room, you'll notice that they automatically do triage. So I have an example of when one of my best friends broke his collarbone skateboarding and we brought him to the emergency room and it was a broken bone. He wasn't going into shock. He wasn't bleeding. And so he waited a little while in the emergency room yeah. while somebody who might've had a more life-threatening injury was probably receiving services in that moment. So there's already an automatic like prioritization within that space. Yeah. In just a moment, we'll discuss sort of what that prioritization looks like specifically with traumatic injury. And we will also talk about the criticism that some have of like, Hey, this guy's in there with a broken bone, just waiting. So, but that being said, essentially the point of bringing that up besides letting everyone know is that the systems of triage have kind of been embedded 
in certain places so cohesively that we sometimes don't even notice that they're that they're there and er is one of them a lot of medicine that's where it is now people have in the sort of modern age tried doing triage by phone this is very difficult there is the idea of doing triage virtually at the time that we're recording this at what seems like we're still headed toward the apex of the the covid19 <laughs> situation doing triage virtually is probably something that people are figuring out pretty quickly. So these are systems that could work right now. I think it's not really clear what that looks like and it's still difficult, but they are at least being developed. And anytime there's a time of need, I'm sure that a system will kind of fall into place or or kind of develop naturally as a result, because I think that the idea of triage is just so naturally occurring now at this point in time in our culture that we're going to find a way to triage wherever we can. We're so good at like we have a desperate situation. <laughs> Let's we're, like we will f- find a way out of this in some capacity or another, even if it's yeah. even if doing so is like stumbling and nonsensical and horrible and ends up not being very efficient. We'll get we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. I mean, a good example of that will be like incident triage. Right. So like, for example, like a terrorist attack. I mean, both of us were alive during 9-11 and just the idea of prioritizing what to do, where and when in such a large scale attack was, I imagine, very challenging. And, you know, you've got first responders on the ground. You've got people, military leaders who are trying to figure out what happened. You've got all these different people that are trying to figure out what went on. But at the end of the day, the first thing is, let's get these people safe. Let's make sure that we treat the people that need the help the most in that moment. It's kind of weird to think about that people who people who maybe were born in 2001 when 9-11 took place are now old enough to vote. I'll tell you what's weird is my daughter was born in 2006 and she asked about it because it happened before she was born. So she didn't live through it. And she's like, uh, you were there? And I was like, I wasn't there. But... <laughs> To explain a historical event that they learn in textbooks now to somebody who wasn't alive for it is very strange. Right. Yeah. So anyway, going back to that example you gave of the incident triage, this particular system is like you don't typically see this, right? This is a sort of one-off thing where some emergency spontaneously occurs and you have to have a triage system sort of slammed into place. A lot of times in these triage systems, and they actually use this in a lot of different systems medically and otherwise, they'll use these cool sort of tags And so if there's people, what they'll do is they'll either tag these little lights onto them that they're sort of like on these carabiners and the lights have specific colors or else they will have these medical tags that they'll put on them and they'll like just tear off whatever level that they're at with like a color code and it'll have, they'll be able to put some really basic information on that tag about that person. And that helps sort of the frontline workers go through and figure out like if these are minor injuries that you only need basic training to deal with then those people will go to that color. If they need more intensive treatment, then they'll get put in like a specific place. So just kind of these cool systems that have been put into place where they're so well established for the most part that the emergency responders just have those on hand in case they need them. And I think people are continuing to look at what's the most efficient way to do this, but kind of a cool thing there. I mean, it's interesting to see. Like, it's, it's a system that works. All right, let's talk a little bit about this trauma triage, as I mentioned earlier. And this is how to make that decision. And it's easy as A, B, C. And D, E. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, A, B, C, D, E. The idea here being that focusing on these things as, as informing sort of where that person is at and if they are in, de- if they are in need of immediate and critical intervention. And so one is whether they have control of their airway and if their spine is basically working or if it's been crushed or otherwise damaged. 
Another one you'll look at too is breathing, right? Making sure that person has some kind of cleared pathway, airway, like they talk about airway control, but like just making sure that person is actually breathing and it's not just shallow breathing. Yeah. If you look at the flow charts for these, if they're not breathing, it is like all hands on deck immediately. Like just start administering CPR right away, whatever it takes, determine whether or not they can be saved and whether or not they're still alive, basically. If their circulation is critically important, that one is I basically just mentioned if they have a pulse is the next one. So that's with ABC, airway control, breathing, and circulation. Yep. D is going to be disability or neurological status. And so this is what you'll see when like first responders will ask questions to kind of orient the person to where they're at. I saw a video that the, an officer recently was asking somebody what month it was and they said Obama. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny, but the answer is kind of funny. He said, like, you know, she, I mean, she was very clearly neurologically impaired as a result of whatever was going on. There were substances involved. Ah. So at least it wasn't like a debilitating thing. Right. But it was one of those things where it was like, that was a clear test of that D in the trauma triage. Yeah. Essentially, like if there's some kind of brain damage, then that obviously that's often going to mean immediate intervention is necessary. And then the last one here is exposure during undress. And this has to do with making sure that you don't accidentally expose them to like hypothermia and that sort of thing, or if they already have hypothermia, whatever it is, just being careful when you're prepping them for intervention that you don't expose them to greater harm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So one, one last thing here in just discussing sort of these medical situations, there is this phenomenon of people who come to a hospital or they're in a triage situation in some capacity and they're there for so long that they just take off. They're like, you know what? I'll take my chances out there. I'll risk it. And this is called leave without being seen or LWBS. And so one place, or at least one study I was looking at, they were implementing this Japanese business method, which is operating principles that were derived from auto manufacturers. And I saw Toyota specifically listed, but it may have been others as well. And essentially, this is a process mapping situation, and it's called lean thinking. And the idea here is that you, in like a hospital situation, what they'll do is they'll send doctors and nurses to come around and see patients in the triage area rather than waiting for open beds. And the intention here is that you will prevent people from leaving without having any kind of contact with a doctor and you'll be able to keep them there so they can actually go through triage. And there's there's a little bit of a sacrifice here because if they do this and they're like out in public, then they might be exposing this person. Like they're, they're around other people. Their privacy basically is being compromised. And not only their privacy, but like a lot of things about their privacy, including what their medical condition is, might be somewhat compromised. So there's there's that as a consideration. But what they did see is they reduced the percentage of people who left from 4.5% to 1.5%. And even though 4.5% to 1.5% doesn't seem like a lot, that could end up being you know the, the difference between life and death for some of those people. So this hasn't been implemented fully in all places, but it was a way to address, especially when you have a really high volume number of people coming in to a emergent to like a medical care facility and trying to manage that as best as possible. Yeah. And that's especially important for places where let's say that that's the only facility around or that there are multiple facilities, because if the person leaves then they're going to go to another facility and they're going to put more pressure on some other resource, right? It's a great point. So if they can get them to stay in that space and get the treatment they need when they need it, then that just helps everybody all around. Right. So there are some critics of triage. 
because there's always critics of everything. Yeah. So some think that first come, first serve is better. Okay. And that's one of the biggest kind of criticisms about this idea of like, oh, I've got somebody who's got a broken collarbone. They should get treated before the guy who has a, a, a knife jammed into their skull <laughs> and needs emergency surgery right now, which, you know, you live in Daytona. That's something that could very well happen. <laughs> Just threw Daytona under the bus. It, it's okay. I live here. I was born and raised here. It's fine. Knife in the skull. Maybe, maybe a good band name. I don't know. But anyway. <laughs> I feel like it's a Slayer song somewhere. The, yeah, probably. That's fair. Yeah, so I mean, I think... If you imagine the perspective here of you're clearly like bleeding or you've suffered some damage or you're maybe feeling really ill or something and you go to the hospital and you see person after person after person come in after you and get seen by a doctor before you and you might even start to look at them and see like, are they really worse off than I am? Like, I've been here for so long. I really need to see somebody like otherwise, what's the point of me being here? I think that there are some people who can just feel really disenfranchised with that. Another criticism that I've seen is just that if there are triage systems put into place that lack a clear goal, then they might be really poorly implemented such that the frontline workers don't really know what to do. And then the mistakes that they make because they aren't really told or the expectations aren't clear, then it ends up costing people their lives. And that can be a situation where honestly, it would have been better to just do whatever you see rather than have people running around making a bunch of mistakes because they don't know how to execute on this triage system. Yeah, I mean, the priorities shift so quickly. Yeah, right. That makes sense. Another criticism that you'll see is that the severity and survivability may not match. So you'll see results in poor choices. So like when you talk about this idea of triage, you'll see that maybe somebody is more severe or less severe or the decision that's made doesn't really match because maybe somebody's got internal injuries versus external injuries. So decisions are being made based on what they can see versus not what they can measure internally. I think you said it well. Yeah, just that there may be a mismatch there. Now, another one that people have pointed out is that how you actually decide whether where someone fits into that categorization, some of them are fairly clear. Again, going back to this, if they seem to have brain trauma, if they are having trouble breathing, those are fairly clear, objective things to look at. But some of them are much, much less clear. And that you end up putting this subjective assignment in the hands of the frontline workers who, again, like they just got to make an arbitrary decision on the spot. And it may not be the best one for that patient. And so if there is any amount of subjectivity in the assignment parameters of triaging people, then you you might end up with people who end up putting undue strain on the system or aren't getting the help that they need. Yeah. And another thing you'll see too, is that it may not scale up well. So, you know, you think about just scaling in general, which is probably a talk that we could do. And there are hundreds of books written on this anyway. Yeah. But this idea of scaling is, you know, if I have to make a decision across 10 people, that's going to be one scenario. But if I have to make a sound decision across a hundred people or a thousand people, that's going to be a little bit more difficult, right? So I'm going to have to learn how to prioritize within that. And the system has to be built to be able to support that level of decision-making. Yeah, exactly. It might be that how that system works needs to change based on the number of people that that are in need. And so it's like, maybe it's easy to put in a system where it's just, you know, the, the obvious things first, like something like breathing that works well when you have a small number of people. But when you go to a group that's really large, like thousands of people, then that might go right back to that world war two thing we talked about where the priorities shift of like, there are people who like, they need desperate intervention, but the time it would take me to save them was going to cost a lot of other people their lives. So like, I'm going to focus on the, the, how efficient I can be with my time. And so then that would shift entirely the triage system and might shift. And a lot of these use color coding. So it might shift what those color codes are. And so 
it's just you have to have a clear idea of how and where to implement those and that isn't always maybe well indicated another one that is mentioned is that this is just that a lot of critics say is like it's just one more barrier between the doctor and the patient you know or the patient and their treatment in some capacity of like not only do they have to know like what to do and where to go but they get there and then they rather than get a treatment they have this new step they have to go through which is the triage system and so that's just another criticism that i saw yeah which probably brings up the point and you'll hear this a lot is this idea of the triage system being unethical which i think is really interesting now when you get into ethics in general generally like when you're in a helping profession and working in like any sort of like human services the idea is that you are supposed to do no harm and do good right so with ethics you'll hear that kind of like that spirit of any sort of ethics code is this idea that like i'm going to try to minimize harm as much as possible and so some people will say that the triage system might actually cause more harm because people are waiting for services or waiting to be treated. Yeah, there's a lot of considerations around when you have to make decisions about sort of who lives and who doesn't, who gets treatment and who doesn't, how quickly they get it. That can be really difficult to make those decisions and feel like it was a justified position. And then it's really difficult then to justify post hoc if something bad were to happen and they have to sort of go back and say, did you do what you should have done in the moment? Because, you know, this was the outcome. And and that's really difficult. And so that's a criticism that's been leveled at it. And then the last one here is that, and this is actually leveled specifically at that lean thinking system we mentioned before, is that this rapid triage doesn't actually get the job done. And instead, at least the article I was reading, they argued that that lean thinking system prioritizes profits over patient care. And they actually made an interesting point, which is that, the people who left without being seen was the the thing that we were talking about where they would come in, they would wait too long and then they would leave while the system might have them be seen. The quality of their visit may have been so poor that it didn't actually result in better outcomes. And so it was like just doctors rushing around spending a five or 10 seconds with a patient or nurses rushing around doing this such that like they were technically seen, but they weren't actually helped or sorted appropriately. And so they maybe still left, but they didn't, leave with appropriate intervention. So that might be actually a very legitimate criticism of that system that's in place. And so you just have to make sure that there are better safeguards to prevent that from being the case. And so this idea that just do as quick fire as much as possible may not give you as much time as needed to appropriately assess the situation and then triage that patient in the way that's the best for them. So there just has to be a lot of safeguards in place for that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds too like whenever there is like a triage system set up, that there has to be very clear and described goals of what the triage is supposed to be, like what the value of that triage system is supposed to be. That way, you know, it's like, you know, it's helping people first, it's whatever it might be, but understanding kind of the model in which the triage system is fitting in. Yeah. Now we had talked about those sort of categorizations of triage that uh, describe essentially how to prioritize it, but there's one that sort of was different from just how to prioritize or how to sort people. And instead is triage that's sort of at the preventative level and the systemic level. And this is a, a very interesting type of triage that we'll, we'll go into depth here in just a moment, but let's give a brief overview of this. It's not talked about as much, but it's also typically less systematic. So there's not a lot of color coding. There might not be labels. There might not be the same type of organization that you'll see in um, maybe like a management type of triage that we've kind of described before. But these preventative ones, that's one of the big things. It's less systematic. Right. It's because it's proactive instead of being reactive. And so an example of the idea of preventative triage might be education made available through free online resources or through, for example, 
TV awareness campaigns. There might be a sponsor to specifically say, hey, this particular drug is causing people to like get cancer or something. And so by putting out that awareness campaign, people stop taking it. Then they reduce the need for triage at the reactive level once they have the problem to begin with. And one of the challenges with this is that there are specific regulations around advertising and labels. Like somebody can't just come out and say, uh, chocolate is poison. You shouldn't eat it. And then do this like preventative thing where it's like, well, chocolate in excess could be unhealthy. And that's probably more of the the label that they're looking at. So like the terminology, the language that's used around it, any advertising around those types of things, there are very specific regulations about this type of thing. Yeah. And, and that'll help do that sort of preventative measure where if there's if they're required to have a certain amount of information, then that will prevent the need for reactive care or reactive issues later. Another one you might think of is sort of community notifications. Again, this, this seems a little bit more reactive in this case, but this is one where essentially you're trying to reach a very wide base of people in this particular situation. And the, the thought that I had as an example of this is like Amber Alerts, where if in your area there is an Amber Alert, like people get automatic push notifications to your phone. This often happens with severe weather warnings as another one where it's like rather than deal with the fallout of like this, tor- this tornado or, or hurricane or flood or earthquake happened, and like now we're going to deal with the fallout of that, which is always going to happen. But like, let's also, as much as we can, prepare people for that situation. But really any other community organization where it's like, let's uh, take on a community project where we clean up these areas that tend to result in people getting hurt. Or let's clean up these areas where we have promoted a lot of problematic activity there just because of the way that it's set up. You know, whatever it might be, just at the sort of the community level. And another one, too, that you'll see within this type of preventative system is the use of some kind of verifiable website. And this is one I think that more people need to take heed or like develop skills around because a lot of people are pulling information from websites that are not even close to accurate. I had somebody get into an argument with me about treatments for coronavirus pretty recently and cite literally one article that was a public opinion piece. And I was like, okay, well, there's no science. Here's what we're looking at. You know, this idea of verifiable websites like the CDC, uh, when you look at things like the coronavirus symptoms, you should be going to websites that are verifiable so that you can grab that information from a reputable source. Sometimes these less than savory sources cause a little bit of a problem. And, and just another cool instance of how you can get a lot of information out to a wide base of people at the sort of preventative level so that they can find out what they need to find out before it's too late is those verifiable websites as well. So in line with this idea of combined with all these systems of triage and preventative triage, there are examples of triage outside of just medicine. Okay. And so there are three primary ones to talk about here. Well, there are two main ones. And the first one is uh, like a mental health triage. And the second one I want to talk about is called multi-tiered systems of support, which could mean a couple of different things. But inside of that, the two that talk about are academic triage and then school behavior triage. But let's start with the mental health triage portion of this. Yeah. So the mental health triage model It uses the scientist practitioner model was originally developed by Steve Hayes, David Barlow, Rosemary O. Nelson Gray. And you'll see this kind of emerge in 1984 and kind of some revisions to it in 1999. 
And what it is, is it's, it, it was kind of this idea of a, a community awareness campaign. And so they would push out information that was more verifiable information about different types of mental health challenges, you know, looking at kind of reducing the stigma around mental health. So people were actively seeking services, but it was more so a, a preventative model than it was really kind of like a management or a reactive model, as far as I understand it. A lot of it was focused on that preventative model, but it, it actually did flow through all the different levels. And so it's set up at its base base, like assessing the level of need so that we can assign people. There's awareness and then like diagnosis as well as sort of a point of contact person who helps then direct that person where they need to go and then going through appropriate screening. And then you get in the reactive part of once you've identified someone who needs help, then there is where they then get placed. And there's sort of your frontline workers who's like, we can implement this generic intervention, sort of mental health counseling thing, that's going to work for almost everybody versus like here is a particular specialist who's like, they are at the point of the generic style of doing intervention with this person isn't is insufficient to meet their needs. And so like they're the sort of high high level specialist. And then even a step beyond that is people who are like, let's organize all the information about this to create a research database so that we can help inform all those other levels of this sort of thing. So it was a very cohesive system of evaluating need and mental health that flowed through this levels of triage where it's like, let's start at those preventative measures first, moving up through how do we then sort people according to their need and that sort of thing. And it was a really cool example of how do we apply the same system of sorting, grouping, and efficiently moving people through that system at all levels. And I think it's one of the most cohesive ones that I've ever seen or like maybe comprehensive and cohesive. I love when stuff comes together like that. Cool. All right. Let's tackle some multi-tiered systems of support. Now, for friends of the show, <laughs> you may have heard <laughs> us talk about this before. And one of the people who helped write the book on this, Kent McIntosh, we had on the podcast previously. And the first one to talk about here is the sort of idea of academic triage. And most people have heard of this as response to intervention or RTI. And this is one side of the multi-tiered systems of support model. Yeah. So what you'll see here is that there are some universal teaching strategies and screening tools that can work with 80 to 90% of students. So there is kind of this process that's built that does allow for the majority of students, a great majority of the students to contact this level of intervention that is super helpful for them. For 90% of students or 80 to 90% of students, you have just the, the general practice that's going to work for most of them. However, with those screening tools, you will hopefully, or you should, identify the support that will be needed for students who just don't really succeed at that universal teaching level. And that's going to be about 10 to 15% of the students there. And that they will then instead be grouped into a, I guess, maybe classroom or some kind of academic intervention system where they have a little bit more teacher attention and time, and they have additional support to be successful at that level. Yeah. So you might see something like where maybe a student is in general ed classes or receiving kind of general instruction, but maybe needs a tutor for like one particular subject or maybe a specific concept within the subject. Like say, I struggle with slope in algebra. So maybe I get a, a tutor just for that particular concept or topic. And I don't think we mentioned this earlier, but the, the sort of universal teaching strategies is referred to as tier one, that second 
level up here of slightly higher intervention is tier two. And then the last tier, tier three, is intensive support for students who do not succeed at that tier two level. And this should really only make up about 5% of students or less and really should not be like a permanent place. Like the idea here is essentially you're trying to generally push to provide the support needed to allow those students to access the lower tiers so that they can be incorporated into the sort of general system, right? Yeah. I mean, if you think of this like from, as a medical model, because ultimately that's what we're looking at. If you go and get surgery, that's going to be a more invasive procedure, right? And so not everybody's going to need surgery. There's a small population that will need surgery. But then when you recover, you're going to move from needing that intense intervention to eventually being more independent and on your own and not needing that level of service anymore. So you're going to move away from that higher intervention to something a little less intrusive. Yeah. And if I may, like thinking about like, let's say this is maybe heart surgery or something. And so if we think about this, the triage level starting at the preventative angle, then you might have a lot of education and awareness campaigns and other types of interventions that teach people diet and exercise and by doing that, you reduce the number of people who end up needing to get any kind of intervention for some of the surgery that might be necessary for something like heart condition. Now, for some people, they're probably going to end up there anyway, just based on their genetics and you know their general exposure to things. But like for most people, if we can get a good system of like diet and exercise in place, we'll prevent them the need from ever having to go to those higher levels. Then that tier two is like, okay, now you need to be on medication. We need constant monitoring. We're now reactive a bit. We're gonna maybe going to take some reactive measures in terms of potential surgeries or other medical devices to have on you. And then tier three, I think, is the like, we're going into surgery. This needs to happen immediately sort of system. So the same same thing applies here to education of your tier one is like, let's find the most effective teaching strategies that mo work for most people. For those students for whom that doesn't work, we're going to put them in that tier two where they need a little additional support. And then for the students who still can't succeed there, we're going to do the like the really intensive one on one, whatever it takes to get them being successful. Now, I think there is a question that some might ask of what if you have a population of uh, like just a really large population of students with special needs who need that, then wouldn't you have a gigantic proportion of tier two or maybe tier three? The correct answer to that is no. And the reason being that within a system, your tier one support should be the one that supports 90% of students. So if a good chunk of those students require a lot of special services, then you tailor that tier one support system to include as many of those special needs students as possible. And so it just becomes that it's a more intensive system. So what might look like strategies that you'd see at tier two will become tier one because that's what's needed to support the vast majority of students in that population. And that's just what you do. You just modify your tier one. To kind of go further into that, like it, the idea is that it's based on the needs of the population. So in Jacksonville, there is a school called Alden Road, and it speaks to that that exact point that you just made where the entire school is made up of about 300 students with special needs and they range in severity. But you'll see that the universal teaching strategies at that 80 to 90 percent is probably a higher intensity than you would see in like a gen ed classroom or a, a school that has less of a special needs population. So it is absolutely based on the needs of that population. That school is designed specifically to meet the special needs of those individuals. Cool. And so, as I mentioned, the, the students should sort of move across levels as they no longer need those supports or if those supports are failing and they need more intensive supports. So you can see that in total, the system is preventative and reactive and going back to the example you just gave of that alden road and it's a public school too so they have a uh -huh. lot of information out about what they do which is really cool oh interesting 
All right, now that has to do with the academic stuff inside of sort of this triage model, but there's also a concern that many people have or that shows up, which is not just how a student does academically, but how their behavior shows up in school. And so then you get school sort of behavior triage, which I usually just refer to as positive behavior intervention and support or school-wide positive behavior support or something like that. Yeah. And if you want a lot of really detailed information on this, we did do an episode. We interviewed Dr. George Shigai, who was really involved with this process. And as a matter of fact, that was my first episode with why we do what we do. So if you get a chance to check that out, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So essentially what this process is, is you've got these universal policies and procedures that facilitate appropriate behavior for 90, 80 to 90% of the students. So you'll have systems of like anti-bullying campaigns and awareness, stuff like that. You'll have, you know, social skills modeling and reinforcement systems and stuff that, that do help to kind of improve behavior and maintain good behavior at that level. So that's going to impact that 80, 90% of students. And like setting clear expectations and, and stuff like that are all part of what usually looks like sort of tier one. Then you have that tier two supports. These are when you need additional support and intervention for those who are not succeeding with those general rules and principles at tier one. For those students who they just have a little bit more challenging behavior that needs to be addressed with a little bit more attention, regulation, intervention, what have you to help them be successful. Yeah. And then that higher tier, that intensive tier, you're going to get one-on-one support, individualized strategies for students that do not succeed at that previous level. So when I get called in, I'm usually at that level. That's Those are the guys that I work with. Yeah. Is those ones that need that one-on-one support. Yeah. At tier one support, that's when you're often going to be bringing in BCBAs (laughs) and, and whatnot. So... All right. So essentially, together, these systems of support with the MTSS model, the multi-tiered systems of support, these sort students in the same overall manner as the medical triage model that we described at the beginning of this discussion. And what that means is there are going to be screening tools that identify those who need the most intensive and immediate intervention. And then there's going to be those who need some supplemental intervention and general practices that prevent the need for intervention that should address the majority of people in those systems. So the the overlap is fairly clear, but you can see that what that model looks like in just a completely different setting. Right. So given that we've kind of thrown all this information at you, I think it's important to ask the question, where do we go from here, right? This idea of now we know what triage is and we know what it looks like and we know how it's applied to these really important systems within our communities, but what's next? You know, in doing the research for this and thinking about this for several weeks now and maybe longer, because I, I really, really like this triage system. And the more I think about it, the more I like it. And the more I see it implement, the more research there is done, the better it seems to be. And it's difficult at this point to even imagine a condition in which a triage system would not improve the system in which it is imposed, because it's such a smart way of figuring out what's the most prevention we can apply to it, what is the next most level of intervention that we need to assess, what's the highest level of intervention that we need to assess, and inside of all of the steps along the system, should we triage those steps, you know, and figure out, like, how do we move from one step to the next, and we even use the same model of, like, you assess the need, provide support, push them to the next level. A sort of a, a idea there, but like, I don't know, this just seems like it's hard. I just, I can't think of a place where this wouldn't be a good idea. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've got a couple listed here that we just kind of want to reference real quick. But the first one that I think of immediately, especially because a lot of people are active in this, is this idea of climate change and kind of how to improve the environment. You know, if you're looking at like the least that you can do, the straw movement is one of those things that's like, that's the 80 to 90% of things that people can do, right? Like, and there's nothing wrong with that level of intervention, right? But there is a larger level of intervention, a more intensive level of intervention that's needed right now. So if you can do that at that first tier of support, then please do that. But if there's more that you can do, then get into that realm, you know? So, so I think climate change, you know, I think of <laughs> welfare systems in particular, like what does that look like? I think that that could definitely improve because, you know, some people might be receiving services that they don't really need, or people might not be getting enough services for what they actually do need. And, and maybe this is already being applied here. I don't pay enough attention to it, but maybe foreign policy, like that seems like a perfect place to put in triage systems of like, where do we need to, how, how do we appropriately sort where we're going to spend a lot of time working with other countries and, and where they either need our help or we need to be keeping an eye on them or whatever that might look like. I think that'd be a perfect system there to really efficiently use our resources. And same goes with immigration, right? Just being able to kind of like help sort through, you know, who's going to have the most need where, when, like immigration in itself is a very complex system and a complex issue. And so applying something like this to help kind of like prioritize some situations might be really helpful. Those are all really sort of high level giant projects that affect a lot of people. But even thinking about what if you wanted to do some community project type thing in your neighborhood, like triage that system, figure out what's the lowest hanging fruit thing that we can take on that like ra without a homeowners association, which is the worst and shouldn't exist at all. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we take on elevating the value of the houses in our neighborhood by we we're all going to just work together on some general practices that are going to improve the the value of our homes because we want our, our homes to maintain their value. Or maybe like we all want a community garden sort of thing, you know, even a system like that, like there are systems of triage that could be put into place that don't, that include prevention as well as reaction when things are going wrong. And then of course, I think one that is probably relevant at the time that we're recording this to a lot of people. And, but I think is always relevant is just the economy, generally speaking, you know, triaging like where our economy is going, what things are going into it, where can we put in better systems? Yeah. And, and, you know, I think right now, too, looking at this this kind of crisis that we have with the coronavirus and COVID-19, I think that is a very common sense place to start. It is a medical necessity, right? It is a, a medical emergency. Right. But just thinking about like, you know, what's that least level of intervention that we need? Stay home. You, you're asymptomatic. You probably don't have it. Stay home. What's that next level? What's that next level after that? You know, and just looking at like, we're already probably doing it as a society and don't even realize that we have those steps in place. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There probably is a lot of trash out there. And we sort of threw out some ideas that of where that might also make sense. And it's possible there's already been some amount of triage applied to it. But, you know, I just think, you know, let's continue to evaluate and bring a lot of intention to these, these systems out there and, and, Honestly, triage works everywhere. It seems to be like the best idea that we've ever had. So, yeah. Unless you have something else, I think that segues nicely to our take home points. No, I think that's a good place to go. All right. So, I'll start with saying that, as I was just saying, that triage as a philosophical approach can, as sort of a filter of thinking about how to solve systems, can be applied to probably any situation in which large groups of diverse people have some kind of need. And it seems like where it's been applied, the system tends to improve substantially, sometimes by, you know, 
enormous leaps and bounds and really helps a lot of people. So it just, it seems like it it has worked really well where it's been put in. And the other side too, like this idea, like it's, it's not really perfect, right? It's not a perfect system in which it's going to work exactly the same everywhere, but there's not really a better alternative. I like the idea of thinking of it like this, like either we kind of get organized and prioritize stuff or we don't. There's not really another option that I can think of that's going to be helpful. So, so this idea of just let's get organized because ultimately that's what triage is. It's organize and prioritize, right? Right. If we can do that and do that in a really effective way, then that's a great place to start. And you might improve that system, but that is that is where you need to start is this idea of triaging. And then I think, again, just thinking of this in terms of the context of a take-home point, the main idea here is that you have a system often for prevention as being sort of your groundwork and then your screening tools and then sorting by by need according to some variable such as either efficiency of time or the the severity of need or something that makes sense for that system and so that's basically what triage is and how it's been applied and i think that that's just a great framework to orient to things yeah and probably a great place to kind of Tie it all up nicely. (laughs) Awesome. Great segue. Okay, let's do some recommendations. Recommendations. So my recommendation this week is a cultural phenomenon at this point in time. If you haven't watched it already, I recommend you taking a second to watch this because I feel like it is a psychologist and forensic psychologist, like a case study type of dream it's it's perfect this is a show on netflix called tiger king i don't know how to describe it other than it's a seven-part documentary that involves a big cat tiger owner a zoo he runs a zoo in the middle of oklahoma he's at war with a tiger sanctuary based out of tampa florida to kind of give you just like some hashtags i guess for it there's meth there is polygamy there's the possibility of a sex cult. There are explosions. There is a political campaign. There are suspected murder of feeding somebody to a tiger. And just uh, that's that's and that's all true of the show. So and that's those are literally not exaggerations. Every person that shows up onto the show is exponentially wilder than the person before. So from a psychological standpoint, it is worth watching. It's a lot of murder and an intrigue. <laughs> but yeah, there's also there's also country music videos. So I just it has everything that you could possibly want out of a show. It's like a variety show of horror. <laughs> it really is. I, I like I've described it to people. It's like watching it is like the main guy, Joe Exotic. He goes by Joe Exotic. Is like if Florida was a person. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't know. I haven't actually watched it yet, but it does it does sound very interesting. So it's worth the watch. Mine is maybe a little less grandiose and certainly a lot less wild, but definitely just as much fun, <laughs> which is <laughs> I feel bad that I haven't actually recommended this sooner, but we did a collaborative podcast episode for our 100th episode in 2019. And this was with the podcast group ABA Inside Track. And so for those people who are interested in behavior analysis, who like especially being caught up on sort of research and, and what's cutting edge stuff going on, I think that's a that's a great podcast that I would highly recommend. So if you are interested in that thing, go check it out because it's really good. 
Yeah, I second that recommendation. And if I could add another recommendation to this, it would be that those people are wonderful people. And I recommend them knowing them as people because <laughs> they're just wonderful human beings. Just be their friends. That's the recommendation. <laughs> just be their friends. They're, they're absolutely wonderful. Great. All right, cool. I think that's a great place to wrap this up. If you would like to reach out to us, please email us about your ideas about triage and any criticisms you have, but any awesome stories that you have, you can reach us at info at www.podcast.com. That last part there is also our handle on all social media. Shane is active on social media. I check out emails and I'm also check our comments on SoundCloud. So if you want to reach us, you can reach us there. If you're interested in supporting the show, then hey, tell a friend. Maybe go do some triage work somewhere. I like it. Yeah. And of course, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts or you're listening to this. I think that is all I have. Anything else we should add there, Shane? Nope. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. All right. Perfect. Thank you to everyone on our team who does their work. Thank you, Justin, for his great editing work and production on this. And that's all we have. So this is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.